after six years of doing this thing, you think we'd finally figure it out. It's uh, Swing Thoughts, along with Coach Tim, mental performance coach, the uh, Guelph Griffins coach, and uh, webinar presenter. Maybe later I'll tell everyone how lucky I was to observe a Tim O'Connor webinar this week. It was very cool. And, of course, Humble Howard from the Humble and Fred Show Golf Spiritual Leader. I love what you said. If I keep saying it long enough, uh, people will believe it. As long as I believe it, Tim. That's what it's all matters. Hey, I just want to just bring attention to your lovely new signage. No, I know. That, that is very... It's kind of like the Augusta logo. It's simple but noble and elegant. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And, and thanks for pointing out. This will be the first show that we've done... In some time where my sign hasn't fallen down right in the middle. But you know what? As we, as just like in any golf game, you know, we always expect, you know, some, uh, there's always something that will happen uh, during this recording. And, and before we introduce our guest, and you know uh, how excited I have been, I've been texting Tim, I've been sending him audio. I've been very excited to uh, get to our guest. But before that, Tim, how good do you look? Look at us wearing the Jonathan Wong apparel stuff. Look. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll just go straight to it. So, folks, I am festooned with a zero restriction full zip jacket. The color apparently is spruce. No idea what that means. And my shirt is a mo- it's moral i don't know what that is. Moral. it's it's a moral yeah what are you doing moral. with that shirt yeah and the color apparently r-e-g-l no idea what that is either but both of us are colorblind so i know what i thought was funny they go together i don't know we had to ask our guest are these are these the same colors and he's like yeah close <laughs> enough uh jw apparel inc.com uh fairway and green zero restriction uh, B. Dratty, E-P-N-Y, Garb, Royal Albatross, and PRG Golf. Uh, that's what you wear. And, of course, I thought I'd bring it out here because, you know, if you know anything about Ontario golf, you know there is no golf in Ontario. The only place on the earth where they play golf that you can't play golf. Although I just got a, I just got a text a second ago from my brother who's been on this show. Alberta. Did you yeah. hear this? They're... They're going to restrict golf as of Monday, I, I think, to only people in your household or people that you have, um, like, another relationship. You know what I mean? Like a... You're in their bubble? You're in their bubble, I guess. Anyhow. No, that's not unlike, you know, in Ontario. You can, apparently, you can only... Uh, you only ride in a cart if it's uh, someone who you live with. Um, whereas I know a lot of husbands and wives, they don't want to play together at all. But. Uh, no, is that the restriction? I thought the restriction was you can only ride in a cart with somebody you owe money to. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, the uh, I just want to make sure. I, I, I'm, this is a brand new driver. We both got fit from TaylorMade. We always get our our equipment for four or five years now, fully through the bag, TaylorMade stuff. This is the Sim 2 driver that is just mint, has never been hit. <laughs> <laughs> so you, well, it's been hit indoors when you got fitted. Yes. And, but you've yet to take it out and 
So here's the thing. I'm going to Rachel's house this weekend. I'm taking the driver. I don't care. I just don't care. Um, You can experience what we have, which is the Sim 2 driver. Every golfer wants to hit and no golfer wants to follow with the all new Sim 2 driver. Only from TaylorMade. Jokey jokes aside, uh, visit TaylorMadeGolf.ca to learn more. And uh, I have hit the three wood. I have hit the hybrid. And I don't know. I'm not a you know not technical, but the the thing goes out there far. Goes far. Yeah, it has that new blue thing, the new structure on it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Without further ado and delay, um, in June of 2018, Tim and I were invited by our friend. Uh, Sean Casey, who we both are, uh, we're friends with, we work with for a long time. Tim worked with Sean and Sean's students at the uh, Glen Abbey Academy. Anyway, we go to this seminar. It's me and Tim. We're older than everyone in the room combined. <laughs> Seriously, there's like 30 kids. They're all scratch and ones and plus ones, and they're all tall. And Tim and I are just sitting there shivering, <laughs> you know. And Can you speak uh, louder. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Did you go a little slower with the PowerPoint? Yeah, excuse me. Um, if you don't hit the ball 275 in the air, is there some place that we should hit it to? <laughs> anyway, we were impressed by Scott Fawcett, and I've been uh, following the Decade Sims system as a tournament player. I've started using it, and um, and I'll just quickly read one or two lines from the letter I wrote Scott after the seminar. I just said, "Hey, tonight at our at our turn at this weekly tournament, I shot my lowest round of the year, and I won the tournament. Um, and I didn't hit it that good. And I went on to tell Scott that basically all I did was avoid big numbers, and then I just hit my regular shot to conservative targets and lag putted the shit out of the rest of the course. Is <laughs> how I said. And I shot seventy one that night. And and what it was, it was a revelation to me that." And it was and it's something we've talked a lot about. It was a revelation that I could play a very nice round of golf without hitting it well. And so to tell us more about this system, somebody that works with Scott, we're going to find out all about him. Please welcome Lou Stagner. Hey, Lou, how are you? Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. I know that's a long time. You've been sitting here wondering when you get to talk. Lou, let's just get right to it. I follow you on Twitter. That's how I I sussed you out. And I've sent some notes to Scott as well. And since the lockdown in Ontario, about a month ago, I was at Casey's and I said, you know what? I'm going to start looking at the decade thing again. And then I discovered you. So why don't you tell people who you are, how you got involved with decade, and then we'll talk about the system and how it can help people's mental performance. Sure. Um, I work, uh, I have a day job. I work in corporate America. I'm the director of analytics at a very large privately held company based in Philadelphia. And a few years ago, uh, I live in the Northeast. And a few years ago, I was looking to kill some time in the winter. And I had been uh, doing a lot of work on my own privately uh, with golf analytics and golf data. And I thought, I have some interesting things here that people might find interesting. And so one day I told my wife, uh, you know, this winter I'm, I'm going to start a golf blog on golf analytics. And her response was, you're so much fun at parties. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And so I did. And I had no intention of, of ever, um, you know, doing what I'm doing now, no intention of monetizing anything. Uh, I never thought many people would read it outside of maybe a few of my golf buddies. And it uh, got a lot of attention really quickly. And not too long after I started uh, putting some information out there, Scott came across some of it and we ended up meeting. He came to do a presentation in Philadelphia and, and we met one day and great story there. We, you know, he, he met me at a restaurant near where my office is in Philly and it's a very Panera-like place. And we were sitting there just having coffee, chatting. And while we we were sitting there, this giant rat scurries across the floor <laughs> while we're sitting there. But that was uh, about 10 minutes into uh, our first meeting and chatting together. And so we, we stayed in contact. And a few months later, um, we had a conversation and he asked me if I would be interested in joining Decade and being a part of uh, what he's doing. And, and the rest is kind of history. We've been uh, kind of working together now for almost two years. Tim, did you want to ask a like Lou a question? Fly in the wall for yeah. that conversation with two golf nerds <laughs> for the first time. Well, so I was going to say, Tim, it's very similar to us. Tim was writing an article for a magazine, the uh, um, Club Link, and and we just started talking about the game at the super nerd level, which is what brought us together. And uh, you find out that everyone that there's more people in golf, I think, that geek out about it. Then I think other sports that so we always joke about, like, I, I don't know, you've probably done this. You walk by a, a mirror, you're in a, an elevator, you're working on your swing, you're looking at your grip. I don't see sure. people that bowl who do that. I don't know if they do, but. Yeah, I've never seen a bowler uh, working on positions in the mirror. So that's a good point. <laughs> um, so you started working with Scott. And then what what was your job at Decade? I know you have a real job, but when it comes to Decade, how do you guys divide the um the duties there? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I am uh, more on the data side uh, and I am helping out with uh, analyzing the data, understanding the data, refining what we do. Um, We also work with um, uh, tour players and so I'll help out on that part of it. Uh, And we also had a number of, of schools planned for last year in-person schools where we would be teaching the decade system together and those were canceled due to COVID. Uh, We are finally at a point where we are starting to uh, put together the details for some in-person classes for the tail end of this year. Uh, And we should be announcing those here relatively soon. And so that's another component uh, that I'm involved in. Then I also do a a pretty fair amount of of one-on-one coaching. There's a number of players that I work with uh, directly. There's a few uh, tour coaches I work with directly. Uh, I do a a fair amount of work with uh, Division I players and a couple of elite amateurs. Uh, And it, it definitely keeps me busy. I wish there were more hours in the day that's for sure i was thinking that in terms of (laughs) you got a lot going on i was wondering in terms of as a player what intrigued you about the numbers and what you saw in terms of going deeper into analytics that could help your game and how you saw it could help other players 
Well, I've always been um, I've always been into the numbers. So I I have a spreadsheet that I started back in the mid '90s when I really started to get into playing, and uh, when I got down to single digits, uh, and then got down to around scratch, and I was tracking shot level detail back in the mid '90s, and I would track everything from every round. I would come back, I would enter it in this spreadsheet. So I still have all of my data from everything back then until now. And I still still do it that way. And so I've always been uh, into the data side of things. And in corporate America, I've been working in analytics before they called it analytics um, 20 years ago. Uh, and so it's just been a part of my daily life for over two decades now. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, an interesting journey. There's been a lot of things that I've, I've learned along the way when I did some deep dives into the data that I, I was surprised by. And um, uh, one of them was uh, angles, right? It, 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 I was always taught if the pin's on the right, you want to be on the left-hand side of the fairway. And one of the first studies that I put out uh, looked at that. And when I went into it, I assumed that there was going to be a very distinct advantage for having the quote unquote proper angle. And I was really surprised to see that there wasn't. And when I think about it, I I can't prove this because I don't know the intention of the player. And, you know, that's one question that that I get all the time. What's missing in golf analytics? And and my answer is always intention. You know, I know where you ended up in relation to either being in the fairway or not in the fairway or being on the green and how close you are to the hole. But I don't know where you ended up in relation to what your intention was. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know the in, intention um, of the player uh, when they have the better angle or when they have the worse angle. But my theory would be when we have the better angle, we've always been told we can be more aggressive. And generally, we have a better angle to a pin that's short-sided. The pin is tucked far right or far left, and we're on the opposite side of the fairway, and we get more aggressive. And so you've been through the decade seminar, and you know that if you're getting more aggressive to a pin that's cut close to the edge of the hole, you're gonna, going to short-side it more. Mm-hmm. And you may have a few more uh, birdie putts that are closer, but you're also going to miss the green on the short side more, and that's going to offset any advantage of having a few more closer birdie putts. And, and then I think the opposite was true on the, on the other side. When you have the worst angle, um, you are being a, a little more conservative, right? So you're aiming away much more to the fat side of the green. You're hitting more greens. You're not short-siding it as much. You have longer putts for birdie, but you are short-siding it less. And the scores are really, really close uh, for the most part. And and I I love that you open with that because it's been a bit of a debate with Fawcett and you and a couple of guys, Chambly weighed in on. In fact, one of the reasons I think this is so cool having you on now is because during the Masters, you know, I watched live from uh, Augusta and there Chambly was just talking about Will Zalatoris and his amazing play and then crediting a decade with helping sort of quantify some of the myths about golf and that's a great one where everyone thinks you know if you've got a good angle you can go for the flag but if you dive into the statistics one of the things that i remember from the seminar was when scott told tim and i that tiger woods was successful because he was one of the most conservative players in history um maybe talk a little bit about that and and what that means to be conservative based on kind of what you were just talking about rather than going for pins that are short-sided to take more of the you know sort of longer view statistically and see where it all plays out 
Yeah. And, and I just wanted to add just a little additional color and context on having the better angle. It's, it's not that um, it doesn't matter because occasionally having the better angle does matter. But in order to get that better angle, you have to aim closer to trouble where the trouble could be simply rough. It could be a bunker. It could be some kind of hazard. You have to aim closer to that. And so your target is closer to the edge of the fairway. And you know, by definition, the edge of the fairway, the, the fairway ends and there's something else after that and the scoring is going to be higher from there. So when you shift your target close to the edge of the fairway, you are going to hit more balls that are not in the fairway. And one of the examples I always give that, that people understand quickly and easily is think of Sawgrass in 17 and the typical Sunday placement that's hard right, extremely right-hand side. And they have wedge or nine iron in their hand on that hole, but still, that's just a few steps off the right side. If they were to pick a target directly at the flag, they're going to hit a lot more balls in the water because that that pin is only a few steps off the right edge. So they are shifting their target away from the water, away from the flag, so they don't hit as many in the water. And that it's the same concept as trying to position your tee shot closer to the edge of the fairway. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. And so to go back to um, you know being conservative, your your, your question there, um, it's not that it's it's conservative, right? It's actually decade is a pretty aggressive approach uh, uh, off the tee you know we need a reason to not hit driver Um, the default is grab your driver and we need a good reason to not hit driver and then when we are uh, picking our targets for approach shots we're we're not picking conservative targets and and sometimes I, I think that's um it's a hang-up for people. They, they believe that that's the case. It's not conservative. It's an optimal target. And the way that I describe decade is like playing uh, blackjack. So, the, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm an honorary Canadian. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, lived there most of my <laughs> life. First time I played in a casino was up in Canada. At Niagara Casino Falls. Niagara, right. There you go. And the first time you play blackjack, you get one of those cards and it has the rules on there to tell you what you should do um, in every situation. And the reason for those cards is you are optimizing your edge against the house by playing the rules. And I'm not really a blackjack player. I've played a handful of times, but I know that you would never hit on a hard 18. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what the up card is. You'd never do it because you're just crushing your odds at that point. It might work out occasionally, but it's generally not going to work out. It's going to be in the long run, very bad for you and very good for the house. And, And so picking targets in golf is like playing blackjack. And these rules that decade gives you are like following blackjack rules. And you follow these rules because over the long term, you are optimizing your edge against the house, where the house is the golf course. And you are trying to optimize your scoring by picking optimal targets. And the video that Scott uh, often shows in his seminars is, is Tiger years ago talking about how he is aggressive, but he's aggressive to a conservative target. Mm-hmm. And so he's picking targets that are uh, minimizing how often he's going to short side it, but he's being very aggressive to those targets. And regardless of the level of player that you are, uh, I think, and Scott has said this a thousand times, that that's one of the most difficult things to do in golf is to look at a hole, look at a situation and ignore the flag, pick a target 
and focus in on that target and not get drawn in by where the flag is and, and trying to, uh, you know, push your ball, pull your ball, have your ball go, go over there, but really commit to the target that you're picking. That's uh, what we're really talking about in so many ways is just playing really smart golf. And what we've talked about on this show for up to six years is that it's not all about golf swing. In fact, you can you can play a lot better with the swing you have. And what I like about decade, I feel like I'm still learning. Like like Howard is at a professorial <laughs> level so far, and I feel like I'm just sort of like just learning. But what it sounds to me like when you play what we'll call smart golf, optimal targets, you're taking the stress off your ball striking. And it doesn't have to be so perfect all the time. Can you just speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think you not only you're not only are you taking the stress off your ball striking, and and I think the way that you take stress off your ball striking is uh, around um, managing your expectations. That even the best players in the world, they're going to pick a target, and they are very rarely going to hit that target exactly. It's just not how golf works. And some of the players that I've worked with, I've gotten feedback from them that that has been the most eye-opening, most enlightening, and the most beneficial part of all of this is understanding, yes, I'm going to pick a target, and maybe I have a wedge in my hand from 110 yards, and and maybe I'm a really good Division I player, and I'm ranked in the top 100 in the World Amateur Golf Rankings, but I'm going to hit that wedge in this perfect position into a pretty large area. Like I have a very specific target, but I'm going to hit this into a pretty large area. And I have to realize that and just accept that. And so I have to pick my target and realize that I'm rarely going to hit it. Go find it, rinse and repeat, and just keep doing that over and over again. And so I I think that's a big... Uh, that's a big part of it. But, you know, the other thing that plays into this and Stuart Sink mentioned this a few weeks ago after he won on Colt Nost uh, PGA Tour XM show. And he said, I've already made my decisions before I come to the golf course. I know what I'm going to do. And when I get to a situation, I know what the proper decision is. Mm-hmm. And it takes the indecision that we have out of the game. Now, that doesn't apply to every hole that we play. Some holes are very obvious as to what we need to do and how we need to proceed. But there are many holes and many shots throughout the course of the round where we're not sure. Do I hit driver? Do I hit three wood? Um, What target do I pick on the green? Um, Do I try to carry that bunker? Do I not try to carry that bunker? Do I try to carry the dog leg, etc.? And Decade helps to remove all of that. And as a player, you can sit back and you can say, I know that I am picking the most optimal approach for this situation. That doesn't mean it's always going to work out. Um, trust me, I hit plenty of shots way off the way off the map. Um, but I'm optimizing my long term approach by by uh, adhering to the strategy. Uh, first of all, Lou, the analogy with blackjack blackjack is so good because all decade is doing is giving you some of the rules, some of the general rules of optimizing any particular shot. In round of golf, etc., tournament um, of the acronyms in decade: distance, expectation, correct target, analyze, discipline, and expectations. Having gone through the seminar and now having spent since October, well, we we lost golf here. Uh, when was it, Timmy? April seventeenth. So they shut down oh golf. God, yeah. 
And uh, I was hanging out with Casey, and I said, you know what? Sign me up. Let's do the app. And I've spent basically, you know, whatever hours there are in a day since April 17th. And the one thing that stands out for me, and I mentioned it on the show uh, the last couple of weeks with Tim, the biggest one for me is expectations. And I, I think for the average player... And you're a scratch golfer. Uh, Tim's, you know, a six, seven handicap. But a lot of the guys listening are 10 to 15 handicaps. Now, I know decade is skewed for, you know, elite amateurs, division one and pros. But I think the expectation part, Lou, I think that is apt for every golfer. And I want you to talk a little bit about some of the numbers that tour players hit because this I don't want to get into dispersion but this will give people an indication that in let's do three examples in putting in approaches from 100 yards and approaches say from 150 the reason I think expectations is the most valuable part of the app is once you realize that even the best players in the world are going to hit this many shitty shots it kind of takes some of the pressure off us so give us some of that if you can, uh, Lou. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so let's start off with 100 yards. It's always a favorite one for everyone. They get a wedge in their hands, they're in the fairway, and they just I- expect that shot to be inside 10 feet. I have some buddies that I play with that still, to this day, you know, they're 12, 14, 15 handicap players, and they get a wedge in their hands from 100 yards, and they feel like they should be inside 10 feet. And that's just so far from what's realistic. And I think having proper expectations um, does one thing that's really big for the game. And I think that's on the mental side. When you have uh, warped expectations and you think that I should be performing at a much higher level um, and you're actually performing well for your skill level, Mm -hmm. you can actually impact your confidence by you could be a fantastic wedge player from 100 yards for your handicap level, but you could think you're the worst wedge player in the world, and that may actually end up impacting your confidence and make you a worse wedge player than you really are. <laughs> yeah. And so it's important to understand proper expectations for your skill level. So from a, a tour pro from 100 yards, their average proximity is just over 18 feet, and they hit the green about 84% of the time. Just pause for a second. Just pause. Sure. So, yeah. <clears throat> so, most of us, you know, and my handicap is pretty low. It's although it's funny, I, I've, I've been saying, "Oh, I got to get to scratch," but I realize that I'm probably closer to scratch than I thought I was because of the number of times you need to shoot that number for your handicap. But let's just say it's me, Tim, and you, and we're all at 100 yards, and and we're all good players, and I hit it to 30 feet. I would be pissed. But, yeah, you you shouldn't be. But you shouldn't and, yeah, and be. The reason you're yeah. the reason you're pissed is because on a Sunday you watch somebody got a wedge in their hand and hits it to twenty feet. And Nick Faldo and Jones, he's not going to be happy with that. Yeah. But yeah, can, that's so a, that's Lou, a big so, part of it. So Lou, continue. So if a tour player's average proximity from a hundred yards is eighteen feet, that's the average. That means a whole bunch of guys who are ranked in the top hundred on the planet hit it to twenty-two feet and thirty feet. And if you watch golf this weekend, you'll see some of them miss the green. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the number, uh, I don't have this one in front of me, but it's pretty close. I think they hit about 30% of their 100-yard shots from the fairway outside of 30 feet. These are the best players on the planet, and they do it three out of 10 times. 
you and I are going to do it a whole lot more than three out of 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so when I, when I share that kind of information with people, it kind of blows their mind. And, and I hate to pick on the announcers because it's a very challenging job. Well, let's to do fill, that. Yeah. To <laughs> fill airtime for that many hours. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. be able to do that effectively, but they do. They do tend to say things like, yeah, you know, he hit that to 14 feet. He's going to be really disappointed with that one when that's, you know, well better than what the typical tour pro would do in that situation. And I think, you know, every Sunday we are seeing the best players in the yeah. world that are on a heater. Yeah, right. Exactly. They are and we've said players that. playing their best. And and that that helps to warp our expectations. And that's the thing about golf that I don't understand. Um, and I, I have some thoughts on it, but I don't know why we compare ourselves so much to tour players. Like when I see LeBron dribble down the court <laughs> and leap from a, a step inside the foul line and slam it down, I don't go out to the basketball court going, you know what? I can do what LeBron just did. I, I, you know, I first of all, that we've said that a thousand times. When you're watching golf on Sunday, you're seeing the best players having a great day. Listen, Tim and I grew up playing hockey. I love hockey, but when I watch it, I don't go, geez, I should be as good as uh, Sidney Crosby. Why aren't I? Here's the reason I think, and Tim, maybe you have a thought why golfers are like this. It's because every so often we all hit a shot that is tour quality in our minds. We go, oh, that was perfect. And there's something, Coach Tim, about the human the human nature of thinking we should always be able to do that. And then when we can't, to your point, Lou, when we hit our 105 gap wedge to 22 feet and we get pissed, it, it's like our expectations are, are managing our emotions, Tim. Well, I think part of it is, is that unlike most sports we watch on TV, whether it's football or baseball or hockey, uh, most of us are not playing at whatever age we're at. <laughs> we're not playing hockey. Like we're not going into the corner with Connor McDavid, but we're playing golf. Right. So we're participating. But I also think it's not unlike when we watch a, a movie. When we watch you know, Harry Potter or Frodo, we're reflecting our own experience through these characters. So I think that's part of it. But the point I wanted to make was... I think a lot of people, when they think about golf analytics, strokes gained or decade, they think, oh, that's for those, you know, the number nerds, the left brainers or whatnot. I believe that this is crucial to the mental part of the game. So, like one of the things is on your on the on the decade card is manage your state. Physiology first. Eliminate downward spiral. When you are working from a place of knowing your tendencies what's the optimal shot giving yourself the best odds you put yourself in a state where you're more relaxed mm -hmm. you're more accepting and you're not burdened with these expectations to hit it to 10 feet so i really think that's a part of it so i'd like you to speak to your experience in terms of once you started to make these discoveries about the analytics what effect did it have on you in your mental approach to golf yeah, I think that is the one of the biggest components to decade is the mental side. You know, the the math and the strokes gained and the things that most people tune out. Um, I realize that there's only so many people that are extremely into the the number side of the game. And I had not too long ago a, a friend of mine who's a phenomenal, you know, plus four. 
player who's played in multiple USGA events, he has no idea what strokes gained is. Mm-hmm. He has just no clue what it means, what it is. He doesn't care. He just goes out and he, and he plays. And, and he's a player who's been playing since he's three years old and is a very elite player. And there are far more 10 handicaps that have no clue what strokes gained or any of this stuff is. Uh, the part of decade that's the easiest to learn is that part uh-huh. is understanding the decision-making process and the system and the rules. And I think the biggest benefit is what you just touched on, Tim. It's the mental side. And, and with the players I've worked with, the biggest point of feedback that I get from them is around expectations, you know, understanding I'm going to pick a target and I'm rarely going to hit it, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to continue to pick a good target. I'm not going to change my strategy based off of one instance or one outcome. I'm going to continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, Just because you had a hard 18 and you, you played the odds and you didn't hit and you lost that hand doesn't mean the next time you have a hard 18 that you're going to hit. You're not not going to change up the strategy. You're going to stick with what is going to work in the long term. And that feeds, in my opinion, so much into the mental side of the game where it helps to it helps to make things easier. It helps to um, give you a, a sense of calm on the golf course. It helps to helps you to know that you are doing everything you can to optimize your scoring, uh, which is what golf is all about. And one of the biggest things that I think happens with people that play, and this is this is for 15 handicaps that are applying decade or scratch players or tour players is the bottom end of our range starts to get better. So Howard, you talked about your example of I shot my best round. There's plenty of those, but the bottom end of the range gets better for players. And if you are a tournament player and you can take and turn a 76 into a 73, that's big, right? When you got it going and you're playing well and you're putting the golf ball where you want and, and putts are dropping, you're going to shoot a pretty good number. Uh, it's when you're not playing that well mm-hmm. is when this really comes into play. And if you're playing tournament golf or you know just weekend golf with your buddies and trying to take a few of their dollars, you need to you need to make the bottom end of your range a little bit tighter. And, and this really helps that part. Well, that's why I brought up E for expectations in the decade acronym, and it's it was the reason I wanted you to go through the uh, the numbers from a hundred and some putting stats, not to nerd out on the numbers, but to get people's heads around the idea that when your expectations are tempered, it not only helps your confidence, as you said, and as Tim was saying, it can manage your state, which is a real you know Paul Doolin. Uh, another friend of ours and a real dueling thing about managing state in the, in the, on the golf term in the golf course. But it also puts you in a frame of mind to make better decisions when inevitably you're going to hit some, you know, skanky shots. You're sure. going to miss the green for let's do 150 and let, let, I, there's two one. Let's do 150 and let's do putts because for a lot of people they go, Oh, I three putted. Well, guess what? At 30 feet, tour players start to three putt almost as much as they start to make those putts. So yeah, maybe absolutely. maybe walk us through yeah. some of that. Let's uh, let's look at 150. So from 150 in the fairway, the average proximity is 25 feet, and they hit the green 76 percent of the time. That's when a tour hit, player. Yeah, it's a tour player. Um, when they hit the green, the average proximity is 21 feet. From the rough, which is something I also like to to give, from the rough, the average proximity is 52 feet 
from the rough, 150 yards. <laughs> okay, hold on. From yeah. 150 yards, you're on a par three. You know, you know, okay, that you're, you're on a, your second shot in a par four is in the rough. You can expect if you're a tour player to hit it to how many feet? 52 feet, 10 inches is the average proximity for all shots from the rough. That blows. That's mind blowing, isn't it, Howard? Yeah. So for guys like us. We pretty much want to hit the green. green, They hit 46% of the greens from the rough. 46 At 150. At 150. So for guys like us, simply getting it anywhere on the surface is a job well done. Wow. It really is. And in so many players um, I've seen from 150, me included, back you know back before I started to truly understand and implement. Before you this. were enlightened, yeah, I, I would be <laughs> concerned and upset if I missed a few greens from 150. Absolutely, and now I don't beat myself up as much. What I do is I, I try to minimize short sighting it from 150. Right when I'm in the rough. Because it's a whole lot easier to get up and down. But, but just pause there for a second, Lou. So what a great thing to know. You're in the rough. You're 152. And uh, you're no longer trying to hit it. You know, see if I can make birdie, which is another great decade thing. You know, stop trying to make birdies. At that point, you say to yourself, okay, a tour player's average is 52 feet. So my job is to leave this either on the green if I can, but in the best spot if I miss it to get it up and down. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, you know, one of the things that Decade has is it has a, a, a number uh, and the concept of Decade is you don't want to aim this yards or closer from the edge of the green is mm-hmm. basically how it works. So depending on where you are. So from 150, that number is eight. And you don't want to aim closer than eight yards to the edge of the green. But depending on how much trouble is around the green, you're going to adjust that. And so instinctively as golfers, we've known this forever. Since they were playing in the sheep fields with stones and sticks, they know that if the pin is on the left and there's water left, what am I going to, what am I going to do? My target's going to be a little bit farther to the right. We just know that. But what Decade does is it quantifies that. And so in a, in a typical situation where you're 150 yards and there's no problems, there's no trouble, you're going to have a target that is at least eight yards from the edge of the green. And if there's trouble on that side of the green, what are we going to do? We're going to shift our target a little bit farther away from trouble. And if there's, let's say there's water over there, we would shift our target an additional three yards away. And now our closest we could aim to the edge of the green is 11 yards. And so it's, it's common sense, but it's quantified common mm-hmm. sense. And what you see like on TV or what you see when you're playing is oftentimes people are picking targets of convenience aim it at the left edge of the tv tower that's probably close to where you want to be but we're trying to get as optimal as we can because every yard makes a difference it makes an impact and for a tour player if if we were to pick the mathematically optimal target on 18 approach shots and we could go out and put a reflector in the ground and say this is your target if they actually picked a target on each of those 18 approach shots that was one yard different than what was optimal, remember, they're very rarely going to hit their target. They're, they're just shifting the center of their bucket of shots around. If they were to move the center of their bucket one yard away from optimal over 18 shots, that would add up to be about a quarter of a shot per round. 
that they would cost themselves by being less than optimal. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to be as close to the optimal target as you can uh, try to be as accurate as you can in that. I, I don't want people out there with, you know, calculators and compasses <laughs> and rulers trying to figure all this out. You know, we're on the fly and we're trying to be as quick as we can and as accurate as we can. But it's important to do that because if you do that enough, uh, you are optimizing your odds long term. Lou, I'm really hoping that through this, more of our listeners will be intrigued by Decade and check it out. But what about just aiming for, say, the middle of a green. I, I, Robert Dameron, former PGA Tour player, was on our show a few weeks ago, and he said he asked David Duvall <laughs> about what his strategy was. He goes, well, I just aim for the middle of the green. Um, what, does, what could that do for a player in terms of maybe as a way to maybe gain a little bit of an entry into understanding how decade works is just going for the middle of a green? Well, that really, that depends, right? The middle of the green at Pebble Beach is very different than the middle of the green uh, at St. Andrews. Right? Those greens are extremely different sizes uh, between those two courses. And aiming at the middle of the green uh, at Pebble might be a pretty decent strategy, depending. Mm-hmm. Um, but aiming at the middle of the green at St. Andrews is maybe not a great strategy. But always aiming only at the middle of the green uh is not always ideal. Uh, not too long ago, one of the D1 players I worked with played in an event out in the desert. Uh, I forget what cor- course it was, but we went through and we mapped out this course. And there was a par three that was going to be playing probably in the 220 range, 225 range. And there was water in front and all up the right-hand side. And this, is, this was going to be an extremely difficult shot. The green was only 14 yards wide. And there was going to be some wind coming up that day. This player is an extremely good player. He's inside the top 100 in the world amateur golf rankings. He is, he can play. And his target for all three rounds was two yards off the edge of the green. He was intentionally trying to miss the green because there was so much trouble on the right-hand side and short, intentionally trying to miss the green. That hole, these are D1 players, and they were playing in a little bit of wind. That hole averaged over three and a half mm-hmm. in three rounds. And he parred all three times. He missed the green twice, got up and down, and he hit the green once, and he, and he played the hole in nine strokes at even par. He gained a shot and a, half on, shot and a half on the field, and his target was off the green. And this is a, a player that's a lot better than all three of us, that's right. for sure. That's so cool. So a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with Glen Abbey. And so years ago when players didn't, tour players didn't hit it as far as they do now, I remember a tour player saying that on hole number nine, which was historically one of the toughest holes at Glen Abbey because of that pond, that his he was aiming for the left side of the green. And if he missed the green, he was okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, I love that place. I, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I played Glen Abbey uh, a bunch of times. And uh, I, I always enjoyed going you, you know, it's funny, to Toronto golf. Glen Abbey, just a quick uh, pivot, is that traditionally when they were playing the tour for most of the years, when it came up in its regular rotation, before kids started hitting at 400 yards, Glen Abbey was one of the toughest stops on the PGA Tour. People didn't realize how difficult a golf course it really is. And, and and it's funny, I don't know that it ever, I don't even think in Canada it gets its due as as a as how um, respected a golf course it is. Uh, the last thing I asked you about was putting. And the reason I keep bringing these up, Tim, is that 
These are things I think when people go away from today's show and they realize that tour players don't hit it close from 100 yards, 150 yards. And if they're from the rough, a tour player is, is going to hit a, a 150 yard shot 50 feet. But let's talk about putting because oftentimes a lot, you know, Tim and I were working together on my putting a couple years ago. I was freaking out because I was putting. Uh, my putting stats were shit. But then I look at at what real putting stats are thanks to decade and I'm like, you know, I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm trying to sink too many putts. One of the things that that Fawcett says in the in the program is stop trying to make putts, stop trying to make birdies. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but there's a statistical reason for that that concept. Yeah, you know, for um, so we could talk about putting stats all day. I'm yes, we could. Geek. I, I <laughs> yes, love putting, we could. And I've spent more hours of my life on putting than probably anything else. Uh, you know, the number that everyone always throws around, and, and listeners may or may not know this, but from eight feet, a tour pro is about fifty percent. Yeah. And you know, I, I can't tell you how many of my buddies, you know, will have a seven, eight, nine foot putt. And they'll miss a few of those and they will beat themselves up afterwards and, and just they feel like they need to make all of those. And that's just simply not the case. These are the best players in the world playing on greens that are very, very smooth generally. Um, and and we are playing on greens that are much bumpier uh, and and we are not as good as they are. And the reason that you hear Scott always hammer home, um, you know, not making, uh, stop trying to make birdies uh, is oftentimes what that means for players is they get very aggressive with their putting and they are just ramming the ball past the hole quite a bit. And this is more for elite players, but speed control and putting is paramount. It's Mm -hmm. so important. Uh, at every level of golf, tour players are very refined with their speed control. They're very good at it. That's the one thing that um, us amateurs need to get better at. And simply going out and working on your speed control is something that will change your game. For for the average 15 handicap, they they have about 35 putts per round for a 15 handicap. That is very low-hanging fruit for a 15. Are there a lot of areas that they can improve in? Yes, generally, uh, and I've played with some 15s that are decent putters, but for the most part, a 15 handicap, if they were to spend 15 minutes a day, uh, you know, a few hours a week in total on speed control from outside of 20 feet, outside of like 18 feet maybe, um, they are going to shave strokes off of their score by mm-hmm. just through speed control. Stop trying to make putts from long range. And for us amateurs, once we get to, you know, 16, 17 feet, 15 feet, depending on your handicap level, we're just trying not to three putt. We're not trying to make 15 footers. We're just trying not to three putt from 15 feet. And that's not what I see a lot of my buddies trying to do. They're right. trying to, to make every putt from inside 30 feet. And that's just not how it's going to work. Well, let me just jump in quickly. And I know Tim has a question and I know you've got to go in a couple minutes. And yes, you're right. We could talk about putting for days. That's what you're, you're talking about geek town. You've, you've arrived. But, <laughs> yeah, I would t- but I will tell you that, you know, the idea of a, you know, and again, I've played at a pretty high level. I played the Canadian mid-am a couple years ago. And in one round, I hit 12 greens and shot 86. 
because I three-putted three times and four-putted twice. Because I just didn't understand that at 20 feet, I was just I should just be trying to get it near the hole. But I think at my level, oh, I should be trying to sink this. But it's in trying to sink the 20-footer, as Scott says. Sure, if you leave a couple short, you know, might have a, a five-incher that's right in the heart. But those are easy to sink versus the five-footer that you've got coming back that it's like, you know, five feet on the PGA Tour. They're 80-some-odd percent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the farther you get away from the hole, the more you want your putting shot pattern centered around the hole. So PGA Tour players, that inflection point is about 50 feet, where from 50 feet, half of their putts are going to be past the hole and half of their putts are going to be short of the hole. The And the closer you get to the hole, the less you want that to be. And so if you're if you are putting from four feet or five feet, we don't want to leave any really short from that. We also don't want to hit them four feet by. Mm-hmm. We want to have good speed control. Uh, but for amateur players, that inflection point is a lot less than 50 feet. You know, and for some of us, for mid-handicap players, it might be 25 feet. You know, where we want to leave half short, half long, we're trying to just get that first putt as close to the hole as we possibly can to have the shortest overall second putt we uh, we can have because that will lower our scores and if we're simply trying to make sure we get it to the hole you know the old cliche never up never in well that's when you hit it four feet past and Mm -hmm. that's when you miss the comebacker and that's when you put a three putt on the card and that's how scores go up yeah so that's one of the things that uh really hit me between the eyes uh at the scott fawcett uh seminar was this again about this piece about expectations and putts is that sometimes you can hit a really great putt, but it doesn't go in. But sometimes oh, yeah. you what you think is a lousy putt, and it does go in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and just one quick comment on that. Um, I did a putting test a couple of years ago with a perfect putter ramp and uh, on a green, and I was doing the flagstick in, flagstick out testing. And uh, I have a perfect putter ramp. I'm releasing the ball in the same spot with the same speed on a green that was you know, running 10, pretty decent. Um, and I and I took the perfect putter out to about 18 feet. It was extremely challenging to hole more than two or three putts in the, in a row mm-hmm. with a perfect putter off of a ramp coming off in the same direction at the same speed because of all the variations in the green and how the, the ball can wobble. There's there's so much that's uh, you know chance when we're putting. Listen, man, I know you got to go. Um, Lou has another podcast. It's very popular. Lou, thank you very much. I, I hope this won't be the last time you'll come on the show. I hope it was a good experience for you. Um, I'm going to reach out, as I said to you just before we started recording. You know, I, I, I've been diving, as you can tell, fairly deep into this, but I there's some player questions I have in terms of how to use the app, and uh, hopefully we get a chance to talk again. Yeah, that'd be great. It was great, uh, great chatting with you guys today. And I still get back to Buffalo a couple times a year. Um, so when I'm there, uh, and, and we're going to hook you back up on in Ontario, <laughs> we'll definitely have to get out and, uh, and play some golf. Absolutely. Good luck that. and give our best to Fawcett. Tell him, uh, you know, uh, we'll get him back on the show if we can sometime. Lou, thanks very much. Awesome. Thanks guys. Have a great day. There's Take Lou care. Stagner. Bye-bye. He's a good man. Just let yourself out. Um, you know, there's so much to that that has nothing to do with the uh, the nerd, the, the the numbers. The numbers are just kind of an entryway to get your head around. And, and it's interesting because I started off that whole thing about the acronym about expectations. And and I, I don't know that he or you maybe got that. I that's that is the mental side of decade. 
The fact that you reiterated it, I'm glad you did because I'm not sure he understood that. That's what I, I think the most important thing about the app is E for expectations because it fits so perfectly into the swing thoughts funnel of just, if you know that you're not supposed to hit every shot perfectly, statistically, it gives you kind of a, I don't know, a sense of, you know, just just sort Hello, of be dude. what's that you get the you get the calm you get like okay yeah. i'm not i'm not expected to be perfect but i think it can really inform your game at the amateur yes. level because you're like because because i tell you when i looked at those numbers at 100 yards i would have thought you if i was at 100 yards and i hit a shot to 30 feet i would be pissed off and you would see me react to it and then there's some cortisol and there's some all this anger and then as he said you might be a decent um 100 yard wedge player for your handicap and that's another thing decade can do it can compare you to a tour player but it compare you to your handicap level you know i and you know you you know you talk about oh you hit you know you don't like hitting the odd shot left with your driver and guess what they do too you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, their shot patterns. We didn't even get to, into that, but they talk about it being a a, a shotgun blast versus a a, a sniper's rifle. Mm-hmm. Because in our minds, we think, oh, we're supposed to hit it to that spot. In reality, if I had you hit twenty drivers, the pattern would be seventy yards wide, and you're a good golfer. Anyway, all of this by way of saying that when we learn what sort of the average players are hitting at the tour level and at our level, I think it can temper our kind of outlook as to what we should expect for ourselves. Absolutely. And and just to go a little bit deeper on what he was saying, again, connected to expectations, is uh, I remember when we had uh, Sean Foley on um, I, I, I years ago, but he talked about having a perfect putter. And what that is, it's a little thing that that um, releases a ball, and it leaves from the same entry point every time at the exact same speed. Nice. And and I remember him talking about setting it up on uh, about four feet from a hole, and there was like a slight a slight break in it from four feet. Ten out of ten went in. Then they took it back to about ten or twelve feet. Mm-hmm. From the same place with the perfect putter, it was more like six or seven yeah. and in. Now, doesn't that this tells you again to what uh, Lou was saying is that so golf is as Mister Rotella said, not a game of perfect. Yeah. We're playing on on this ground, and if you if you took like a even to Augusta or or sawgrass, if you put a microscope on a green, it's going to look like like a bunch of broccoli heads. Yeah, yeah. Then you add a gust of wind, a little bug, some sand. So, anyways, it's just a. And by the way, Rotella in Rotella's book, he was the first person I'd ever said I'd ever heard say um, to hit aggressive shots to conservative targets, which is a which is a decade thing, but it's a Rotella thing from '95. Yeah. So all these things, like, so decade is is what I love about this is just like okay, you buy a certain car, three years later, it's a little bit better. What Decade is doing is just like they're doing in all these other sports. It's just going deeper, and thus we gain a little bit better understanding along the way. And so, again, you know, what what are some key things? When you go to the golf course, 
uh, follow the maxim that the man with no expectations is never disappointed. No, exactly. Uh, be realistic. Uh, why are we out there? We're out there to have fun. Because if you're expecting expectation, if you're expecting to hit it to ten feet uh, with the wedge in your hand every time, well, you're not going to be a very happy golfer. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, you're going to be disappointed. And that, again, statistics are great, but what they can do is just what you just said in terms of managing your disappointment at what you think you should be doing. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what he said about inflection points and putting. Yeah, if we're Listen, if I'm caddying for you and you have and then, a t- I need to get a little elaboration on what that means, I'm, inflection point. Well, I will explain it to you. <laughs> let, let me just explain it to you. So if I'm caddying for you, you have a 10-foot putt. I don't want you to leave it short. The, the reason I three-putted so much in Victoria at the Mid-Am is because the greens were extremely difficult really really hard and so i had some 10 footers that i was trying to make and i had some 15 footers coming back trying to make those yeah but on a on a flat 10 foot putt i say hey tim you know it's a right to left putt let's see you know let's make a good stroke whatever your caddy would say to you but in our minds we're thinking well it's a 10 foot putt i should get it to the hole and and what i'm gonna what the inflection point what he meant by that was at 10 foot I, you, let's get it to the hole, but let's not blow it five feet by. You know, it's, you know, if it's not if it's not like this, but at fifteen feet for an amateur, at eighteen feet for an amateur, you should no longer be trying to get it to the hole and sink it. The point about stop trying to make putts, stop trying to make birdies. At that point, that's the in, the inflection being for tour pros at a at a much higher distance. They're just trying to get it to the hole. And trying not to three putt. For higher handicap amateurs, that might be 15 feet. For me, it might be 25 feet. Same for you. You know what I mean? Like at, at the scratch level, you know, I'm not trying to sink an 18 footer, but I'm not really worried about three putting it. But if you're a 15 handicap, you might want to be thinking at 18 feet, just get it to the hole. And so I don't have to, to don't have a five footer coming back. You know, I always talk about my older brothers who love the game like we do. But my older brother, David, in particular, is, you know, very, uh, he passionate about the game and he wants to improve. And I've always said the same thing to him. Stop three putting. Stop two chipping. Stop making penalty shots. Like, that's what decade is. So that's the inflection point. For a good player like you, maybe at 15, 18 feet, you're still trying to get it. You're not worrying about three putting. But at 25 feet, you should be. Not at mm-hmm. 40 feet. And that's another thing that's opened my eyes. Because, you know, I'm practicing all the time my distance control from, you know, 30, 40, and 50 feet. But I really should be getting into the 22, 25-foot range to make sure that those are just tap-ins all day long. And that's exactly. a huge, that's a huge, I talk about low-hanging fruit, you know. I know, but it's also, it goes against golf culture in so many ways. Yeah. You know, especially guys who are supposed to be aggressive. We're supposed to go for it in life. Don't hang back. And just listen to the language that golfers use about themselves or to others. Oh, nice putt, Alice. Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. No, that's a great point. The, but the thing is, is that we can, as, as I said before, if, if we just have some expectations that, that sometimes it's going to go in, and a lot of times it's not. Actually, most of the time it doesn't. I remember, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so coaching the University Golf Golf Team at the uh, the national championships in in 
Oh, it was in BC somewhere. And I just remember like looking across the course, you see all these people studiously lining up putts and plumb bobbing and doing all that stuff and getting over it and hitting a putt and missing most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people don't get that. Most of the time you miss. And so if we just kind of get this, this, and, and so just be a little bit happy the odd time it goes in and be okay when you miss, because that's the game of golf. And, and um, and, and, and the idea of, you know, the, the card that you were asking me about before the show, the decade, there's a, a laminate that, you know, we both got when we left the seminar. There it is. Um, but I, again, I've been, you know, I've spent, uh, you know, I feel like I've taken a degree in decade, but, but the one thing that I keep, the, I sent you the, um, the audio from uh, the Sam Harris thing about handling you know, frustration in golf. And, and to your point that most of the time, you know, you're going to miss those putts. It's the, it's, it's managing what we think should happen. Our expectations, which I think in your world and our world about emotions, because expectations, not meant, not met mm-hmm. is where we emotionally fucking lose it. Exactly. Right. And, you know, we've talked about this, about, you know, working on your golf swing raises a level of weird expectation that it's now everything's today's the day. It's all going to be great. And as soon as it's not, well, then our expectations haven't been met. And then you come in. Yeah, well, it's it's like um, and yeah, thank you for very much for sharing that Sam Harris uh, piece. I'd love to. Um, I'm going to look and see what uh, show that was on in his podcast. Uh, folks, if you want to learn more about mindfulness and just <laughs> hear some things from a really smart, articulate person, check out Sam Harris. But one of the things that and you I remember you talking about it years ago was somehow in golf, we go out, we tee off thinking nothing bad <laughs> today, is going to happen. Today's today. the day that nothing bad will happen. And of course, that's not true. Nope. <laughs> it's just like expecting nothing you know, untowards will happen during a day. Well, sorry, folks, that's not life. So, but it's being able to, to be able to encounter those things and not get thrown into chaos, Mm -hmm. you know, spiral vortex of thinking. And to me, what decade Sam Harris, all this stuff helps us to understand is that we're going to have challenges. That's just as soon as, 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 as sure as the sun's going to come up, we're going to have challenges. But how do we respond? Mm-hmm. How do we respond? Do we react with indignation? That's not supposed to happen to me. I'm a three handicap for mm-hmm. God's sakes. No, it's it, it's going to happen to everybody. Whatever, we're always going to have these challenges. But how do we how do we meet? How do we accept them? And then how do we respond rather than react? Oh shit! I'm supposed to hit it within ten feet with a wedge. Well, no, and that's a great point too about. You know, what sets us up for frustration is, you know, as I said to you when I handed it over to you about the expectations drive emotions. And I, and I have been saying that's why that Sam Harris thing that I sent resonated so much with me because it's what I've been saying in terms of stress in my own little webinar, uh, which I've been doing. Um, um, but I did it. I had this whole piece about how the reason people get stressed out on any occasion, forget golf, is because they think that today is the day nothing bad will happen to them in their lives. And as soon as they get into traffic and it's stopped and they're pissed off again, 
It's like, what did you expect? It's, as Harris says, you're going to have a sore knee. Traffic's yep. going to be backed up. Uh, one of the machines you rely on in your life will break. These are just things you... But for some reason... We think when the computer goes down for some, well, oh, that's bullshit. What do you that's th- supposed to happen? Well, you think, and, and I, I love what he said too about, did you think you were never going to have to solve any more problems? So in a golf context, one of the most, you know, the biggest tropes is, oh, the longest walk is from the range to the first tee. And, you know, we've discussed, well, why is that? And one of my theories has been because no one, most people, when they warm up, haven't hit a shot of consequence yet. And right. so the first shot of consequence is the first tee. Now, how I work with it, I, I always just expect the first tee, you could hit it out of bounds, and now the game is on. So a lot of golfers start off, they hit a decent drive, they might hit an okay second shot, they, miss, they may or miss the grain, they chip up, they make a par, they make a bogey, and things are fine. But as soon as there's some trouble, some pressure, you know, like, if you teed off at 10 on Blue Springs, man, you'd have to expect, like, you know, there's some chaos coming Absolutely. here. But the problem with golfers is they don't put themselves in the mind. They're in a mind frame on the first tee of just, this is great. Golf is fantastic. It's my favorite. And then they snap hook it out of bounds, and they're done. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because so many golfers are too. Sh- I remember you yeah. said it. I've heard some other people say it, too. Two is swings. It- Two swings away from total meltdown. <laughs> from meltdown. But why is that? All those things we've been discussing for six years can be found inside of this this philosophy. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying decade is my new religion, but what it's done is it's it's given me um, a lot of it's a lot of food for thought on this idea. And even listen, I think I'm pretty good in terms of handling myself now on the golf course. I've had success the last three or four summers. A large part by handling my expectations. But Timmy, I still get mad when I hit a shot from 155 that misses the green. And I say things to myself like, I can't believe you're there. You can't you're not a seven iron. Fucking seven iron can't hit the green. Well, <laughs> if I were a tour player, I might miss the green from 150 30% of the time. Well, that's going to be a lot different now when I'm 185 and I miss the green. I'm not going to lose my mind because I'm going to go, well, I'm not exactly. a tour player. So, you know, you and I are fairly smart guys, I believe. Uh, we've been around this game. We're we nerds. are together one giant brain. <laughs> <laughs> but the more you learn about things, the more you understand what you don't know. Yeah. And this is what this is why the numbers are wonderful and happening in analytics and all kinds of sports is that it's bringing us to a new understanding uh, of some things that we didn't really grasp before. Yeah. And what I love about what I'm learning from Decade, um, again, the, the wonderful example of PGA Tour players from the rough 150, leave it like 52 feet away. Yeah. That's mind-blowing yeah. in terms of, because it just blows my ex- expectations and well, no, not my expectations, but your perception. The your, truth it, was. Yeah, your perception would be that yeah, perception. Yeah, one hundred percent. And listen, if, if you were, do what I did, the last couple of Saturdays and Sundays when I've been watching golf, mostly Sundays, through a prism of these decade numbers. And, I, and I've been tweeting a, a few people that listen to the show know I sort of mainly tweet on Sunday afternoons making snarky remarks with Lou Stagner about proximity. But one of the things that has come up three Sundays in a row, and I've tweeted the same thing. I just saw a PGA Tour player miss the green from 126. 
a PGA Tour player. Sergio, Rory McIlroy missed the green from 126. And when we're 126 and miss the green, what do we do? I've thrown clubs. I have. I've had 126 now, in and missed the green and thrown a golf club. I won't anymore. You're so much more mature, and now you're now add that now you're enlightened onto that. I'm not more mature, but I am. I am more informed. And, and yes. what you just said about perceptions, and and that's a great way of looking at it. My perception has been that I shouldn't hit bad shots. And certainly yes. with a, a gap wedge or a pitching wedge in my hand, I should probably hit the green all the time. But my shot pattern, my shotgun blast, if you and I went to the range today from 126, the the uh, uh, ellipse of the the pattern of my 20 shots, some of them would miss the green. Some Absolutely. of them would be close. As, uh, as, uh, as Fawcett said, you know, I might hot, I might pull my wedge a little bit and that might be right near the flag, but I pulled it and the, and the hot pull went left of the flag. Some of the blocks were right of the flag. Some were long, some were short, but the fact is it's not a, it's not exact. It's a, it's a, a scatter of shots. So if you and I are playing today and I miss it from 126, I'm just going to go, hell, you know, I guess something happens. You know, it's because a drag. Now, exactly. But now you have a different perception. Right. You have. So, uh, again, to go back to our one of our favorite gurus, Fred Shoemaker, he says he always asks the question, he says, what awareness is missing? The presence of which would make all the difference. This is it. And one of those things is around perception. If you perceive you're supposed to abide by, uh, to meet a certain standard or things are supposed to be this way, no matter what you try to do based on that perception, a.k.a. belief system, you're going to be governed by that because that's your, that's the world how, that's how the world is supposed to go. That's what's real to you when in fact, so, so you're governed by that. So if you take a look at what our perceptions are and what decade is helping me understand, I'm hoping some more of our listeners, is that we can just chill in terms of our expectations because we can relax. Uh, like our perceptions are, in fact, incorrect about what good golf. A hundred percent. What good golfers yeah. are supposed to do. You know, in the last three summers, you know, you've heard me. I've talked about it on the show. You know, my handicap, my low handicap is 1.3. My sort of average is around 2, 1.8 to 2.2. And I've been like, why can't I be a scratch golfer, Tim? But why? To me, that's a scratch golfer, but never mind. I know. <laughs> well, it's funny that I, that's where I, I mentioned that to Lou, that in the stats package, I'm seeing most of my stats are at scratch. You know what stat isn't at scratch? My putting. And and I've been I've been thinking I needed to make I thought and here's a your to your point about perception. My perception was I'm not making enough birdies. I knew I three putted more than say uh my handicap would warrant, I thought. I was wrong. Um and also how I looked at three putting was also wrong. My perception of it was wrong. But I've been sort of going, oh, I'm not making enough birdies. But now I realize, here's another little one. At scratch, how many birdies around does a scratch player average? What's the average for a scratch? You're at, is, this is my skill testing question? No, just a conversation. Okay, I'm going to say two. 2.7. Oh. Cool. So and I, my perception 
Yes, you're a good boy, Tim. My perception was that I needed to make four or five birdies around wow. to shoot even par. Because I've had lots of rounds where I made four or five birdies and shot even par. Thinking that's that was the key. How many bogeys around does an average scratch golfer make? I'm going to say... Five or six? Five point something in the early fives. Mm. So just over five bogeys, just under three birdies. But what they don't do at scratch is three putt three times around. Mm. So literally doing absolutely nothing else other than, as he said, being more invested in speed control. Stop trying to make 20 footers that leave me four and five footers past the hole and all of a sudden with really not much other than switching the perception i feel closer to that goal because i realize what i need to do for real i don't need to make six birdies around so when i have an 18 footer i gotta stop trying to make it and make sure i don't three putt it and you know what that's not that hard you know isn't it interesting? Like I'm a, I think I'm a good putter, and yet, well, well then why do you three-putt so much? Because perception, perceptually, mm-hmm. I've been focusing on the wrong thing. And see how that takes the pressure off? Yes, sir. Absolutely it does. And, and I, I want to be clear about this. Like, it's like I'm not trying to make birdies. You're trying, your intention is to get the ball close, and if it goes in the hole, great. That's really different than i got to make this. Which puts all kinds of pressure and the tendencies you're going to blast it by. Well, back to the analogy he used about blackjack. And I do play blackjack. And, I, and there's a couple of hard and fast rules in blackjack. And as he said, if you happen to hit on 18 once, and of course, everyone at the table hates you. But if you do it once and get away with it, that doesn't mean that's what you should do. It doesn't mean if you've got a 22-footer and you happen to blast it and it happens to hit the hole... My, my whole thing has been, I, I realize I three-putt, not because of the 50-footers, which you're going to three-putt. In the last round I played before the lockdown, again, I hit a lot of greens and regulations. And on, I hit enough greens and regulations, regulation, statistically, to be like a plus two. My greens, my GIRs are at a pretty high level. I keep it in play, I hit a lot of greens. But the last day I played, I shot 78 or 77 with four three putts. Two of them were 60 footers. Just you're going to, you're going to. It happens. It happens. But two of them, Tim, were 22 footers that I was trying to make for birdie. Get it. Totally, man. Yeah. Interesting. Um, This is amazing. As you said with Lou, we could talk all day about this, but. I know you've got to go because you've got important things to do too. (laughs) I do. We all do. I don't. I could just talk golf all day. Um, I do. I really could. I could just sit here and do a nine-hour podcast. I'll say one last thing. It's about being interested in doing everything to save shots versus trying to gain shots. That's what Decade is. All right. Yeah. All right. Listen, my friends, thanks to Lou Stagner. Follow him on uh, Twitter, at Lou Stagner. Uh, Decade Golf, you can Google it. Uh, Obviously, thank you very much to Jonathan Wong, Inc. Apparel. Look at us. Look at you. Look at me. Beautiful. And TaylorMadeGolf.ca. O'ConnorGolf.ca is where you get hold of uh, Timothy for all your uh, mental coaching uh, needs. And, of course, Humble and Fred Radio. With their lovely new sign. That is just lovely. The aesthetics of it. Everything. I know. It's very, it's very elegant. 
Um, I would like to continue uh, doing this podcast uh, just to talk to myself now. (laughs) Uh, We'll see you next time. But you don't see too many faces.